academia is more than a workplace. People choose to pursue a career in academia because they are passionate about science. They are eager to keep pushing the boundaries of our understanding of the world. Researchers have an important role in today's society. But they are also burdened with a huge pressure to perform, to compete, to sacrifice themselves. Now, academia is also a workplace. As such, it should provide reasonable conditions for researchers to thrive and give their best. Because researchers are people. People can crack under too much stress. It is time to start talking about mental health and well-being in academia and to do something about it. This podcast is about researchers and their journey through the challenges of today's academia. This is a podcast about people. In this episode, we meet Carla, a postdoc, a mother of two, and someone who once had the courage to say enough and to leave a toxic situation, as well as her PhD. She eventually went back and finished her PhD and decided that science is what she really wants to do, but without the toxicity. I am Federica Bressan, host and producer of this podcast. Join me on this journey. Before we begin, a courtesy warning. This podcast contains psychologically sensitive topics like anxiety, depression, and ADHD. It does not provide psychological or psychotherapeutic support. If you are experiencing severe distress, please contact your personal physician, local ambulance, a distress helpline, or a service for crisis counseling. This podcast is brought to you by the Researchers Mental Health Observatory, Cost Action Number 19117. For more information, visit our website at remo-network.eu. Remo is spelled R-E-M-O-network.eu. Carla's story is one of courage and proof that courage pays off. Being true to yourself pays off. But let's start from the beginning. Just like for many others, Carla's struggles began during her PhD. It started during my PhD, not initially. I would say it started very gradually with here and there comments about people that have a personal life. Oh, that person, uh, is leaving early at seven at night, going around the lab, seeing who is working and who is not. And then, you know, the people that are still working then hear about their colleagues, like, oh, person X already went home. Hmm, hmm. And then uh, gradually going to a situation where I would hear comments, uh, for example, I, I used to run And then I would comment with a friend, a colleague uh, that I had ran, uh, in this case, 20 kilometers. And my boss overheard it because we were talking about it at lunch. And then later in the day, he wanted me to do some experiment. And I would say, oh, I don't know if I will have the time for that. And then he would say, well, if you have time to run 20 kilometers, uh, you have time to do the, the experiment. 
I should mention that I ran these 20 kilometers in my day off, right? So it started gradually like that. And then, for example, I got married during my PhD and it was not well seen that I took two weeks off. And then and then to a situation where the I had a project and I couldn't work on my project because I was finishing the projects of everybody because everybody was quitting. And then I knew how to do the techniques. So I was finishing the projects of everybody. And then it got to a point where I was not working on my project. Carla is describing an environment that values hard work, but disregards everything else. You should not work one more hour, two more hours. You should just work more. However, in the beginning, she didn't know this was a toxic environment. She thought it was normal. Actually, she absorbed this environment to the point that she caught herself checking on other colleagues and frowning if they went home too early. And I, but to be completely open, honest with you, I also, you know, when I was so involved there, I think I also uh, sometimes would look uh, uh, weird at my uh, colleague if he would leave early. You know what I mean? You are so involved in that toxicity. I also uh, would be like, oh, that person quit. Oh, oh, you know, like having these sort of stupid ideas of how things have to be around me, not just in my lab, there were more people feeling the same. At this point, Carla realizes that something is not right. She's immersed in this competitive environment and plays the game by the rules. But she feels the pressure, and she is busy working on other people's projects so that her own PhD is not progressing. She decides to call for a meeting to come up with a plan, because things are not moving forward. I asked, okay, like, we need to make a plan because I need to see the light in the end of the tunnel. I think I was lucid enough to use these words, which I think should be already, it should be an alert. It was almost a cry for help, like, please, let's sit down, make a plan for me because I can't see the light in the end of the tunnel. And it was said to me, yeah, you can't work on your project until all the other projects are done. Uh, So, yeah, sorry, we can't have this conversation then you are stuck because you can't graduate because you're dependent on this person. You don't have publication, so your career is, you are being held down, held back, held down, I don't know, you're held in every direction. You can't go ahead, you can't pursue, you can't go move forward. Carla is stuck. She's not the only one. Other people around her feel the same, as she reports. They are stuck because there are forces outside their control that stand between them and the completion of their PhD. As was mentioned earlier, this is a gradual process and it takes some time to realize that it is happening. For Carla, this came at about halfway through her PhD. The PhD is four years, so what I felt with me, but also a lot of people around me, is that you get to the mark like end of the second year, And you start to realize that you still have two years to go, but you only have two years to go. You have these unrealistic expectations of how much you will get done or how much you need to get done in order order to finish this chapter. And you also realize that, yes, you were a very good student during high school and the master, but there you are just an, an average. You are the same as others. You are not building any skills that the real world cares about. 
there are no concrete aims or goals that you need to achieve in order to graduate. So you are, have no control over your own fate. And I think that's where people start to crash. It's the realization that uh, there's no way out. There is no way out. That's a terrible feeling. And what can you do when you feel that the forces impeding your way forward are outside your control? You ask for help. There are many people you can turn to, but universities and research institutes have one office that is just there to help. HR. So me and a lot of my colleagues, we were going almost daily to the HR department of the institute I worked and uh, they were not doing anything. But in their defense, we, as the people going there to complain, we also were really afraid of someone doing something because you are dependent on your boss, the supervisor, in order to graduate. Our fear was that if he heard that we were complaining about him, then he would make our life even more difficult. Very well. So Carla and a handful of her colleagues were visiting HR almost daily. And what did HR do? They didn't do anything. They didn't file our complaints. They didn't take our complaints and go to someone superior, to the directors and all of that. The only thing they would say is like, yeah, yeah, we understand, we hear you, you're not the only one. I even went to the association, the academy that governs the research institutes of the country I am in. And I said, you know, this is what is happening there. I need some help because, you know, I... I, I need a solution because I really want to finish my PhD. I, that was always my focus. I really, I was really highly motivated to finish it. And what they did, they gave me a PhD coach, which was really nice, uh, but basically was putting on me the attempt to change the situation. And that PhD coach basically taught me communication uh, skills to be able to deal better with my boss because in my discussion with him, it would start always by having a, a scientific discussion about some data or some experiment. And I was not agreeing with some of approaches, especially around statistic analysis of data. And then my discussions with him would be about science, about statistics, whatever. And then I would start to get extremely stressed because I was alone in a room with a man and he would start to shout at me and saying things like, you do what I'm telling you to do. And then I would say, but I don't agree. I don't put my name under that because that is not proper statistics. And then he would complain and talk a little bit loud. You do what I say. And then I would start to get extremely stressed and I would start to cry. And then he would pressure more like, why are you crying and stuff like that. And then some of my colleagues would have the same kind of stressful situation where they would cry or they would storm out of the office and then leave the office and not come for the next days. Clearly, Carla and some of her colleagues were subject to a questionable treatment. And what did the system do to help? It provided her with a coach to change herself and her behavior or her attitude. This is an all too common situation where some systemic problems are dumped on the shoulders of the researchers. Not to say, of course, that a coach cannot be helpful. Let's hear from Carla what else she has learned from the coach. The PhD coach helped me like identifying when I'm getting stressed, finding strategies even in my voice, how I could 
um, project a more confident way of talking, try to, you know, all that. But it's putting on me, on me to change. The institute itself, the, the HR department, everybody, no one did anything to protect us that were more. It was not just me, you know. No one did anything. And to this day, what I think about HR is that they are there to protect the people that work there, the, the institute, and, and not, not uh, the people like me. Fortunately, we can say at this point, HR is not the only place to turn to for help. There are colleagues, professors, and friends and family. Carla tried to speak with her colleagues, but she says it wasn't easy in the beginning. It took a while for us to start to talk with each other. I think because we are in such a competitive environment, it's really hard to establish a real connection with your colleagues. Then we start to talk with each other and I started to realize that more people were feeling what I was feeling. But at the same time, it was nice to be able to talk with people. In a way, that made the situation worse. Maybe worse is not the right word, but I think when we started to talk more openly, then it was easier to complain. And then we created this little nagging environment. You know what I mean? Like it was a relief for me. But at the same time, no one, neither me, were doing anything serious, taking action. Okay, at this point, it's very clear that more than one thing is not working out. But let's take a step back. We said that these processes happen gradually. Everybody has a moment when they tell themselves, wait a second, this is not what I signed up for. Something happens, maybe something small or something big, and it opens your eyes. And you cannot go back. You know something has to change. That is the moment of realization. For me, the moment of realization was after maybe a year and a half. The mother of a friend of mine, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was 27, 28 by then. And I, I don't know, I had a moment of thinking to myself, wait a minute. I barely spent time with my husband. This woman, she worked all her life and now she has cancer and she might die. I don't want to be that woman. And I just realized that life was passing through me. I was not enjoying life. I was working every week. Like I was doing experiments all week and then I was spending the whole weekend analyzing the data so that I could present everything on Monday because we had this extreme pressure also to present every single Monday. And I think that's when I realized, like after a year and a half, and as I said, it was such a gradual thing that you first you think it's normal because everybody around you is doing the same. You don't realize that there's a problem. And people around me, I had family around me and friends. Some people would be worried, but you also have this sort of glorification of hard work. The line between working really hard and like just working and not doing anything with your life is a gray area. Some people were concerned, others were not, because of a culture that glorifies work and productivity. And do you think it's normal? But at this point, Carla doesn't buy into this narrative anymore. With the help of her support system, especially her husband, Carla understands that she cannot carry on like this and takes one of the hardest decisions, the decision to quit. This is how it happened. From the moment I actually had the 
realization of like, okay, this is not for me. I just quit because especially my husband, I think he was the first one to realize that things were not okay. He was realizing that I was not taking care of myself properly. And then he was pushing me to just quit. He said, you have my support, you know, financially, we don't need your income. We can survive with this. And one thing I, now I remember what I start to do a lot is doing things like uh, when I finish my PhD, I'm going to do this and this and that. So I started to sort of make plans for after the PhD. And I remember vividly my husband saying, you're never going to finish your PhD in four years like you want. So I think that's that was the big trigger is was like trying to see the light in the end of the tunnel, trying to know exactly when I would be done and not having that. Then my husband telling me, you know, you're making all these plans for after the PhD. Why don't you do them now? And uh, that's what happened. So the decision was taken, but executing a decision is as important as taking it and as scary. What did Carla do? How did she go about this? The next day, it was a, a Sunday, we had a big conversation and then with me and my husband. And then uh, I just, I said, okay, I quit. I don't, I'm not happy. And the next day I first went to HR I wanted to inform them that was going to happen and that uh, I needed to know exactly what I could say. And then I did the big mistake that I didn't tell the truth to him. By him, she refers to her supervisor, of course. So I said that I was quitting because of me, that I just wanted to do other things in life. I didn't tell about him because I didn't feel safe to tell the truth. I just felt like I couldn't tell the truth. I wonder if I knew exactly, if I was completely aware also that uh, this was so bad. Because I, a lot of these things I only realized after. I just accepted so many things knowing that this was the norm. Yeah, it's really hard to understand exactly why I didn't tell the truth, why I didn't say, like, I'm quitting because of you. I think I just didn't want any trouble. And it was easier for me to just say, like, I want to do other things with my life. So Carla was out with the support of her husband and her loved ones. In a minute, you will hear her explain why this was not a failure. But some things are better seen after some time. In the moment, it's normal to question yourself. So after she quit, Carla took some time off moved to another country, took some art courses and reconnected with life, which includes getting pregnant with her first child, followed by the second. Today, she is back in science. So what happened? How did she take this decision? I had kids in between, you know, like I had all life happening that wouldn't have happened if I was still in science because I was so focused and so oblivious of personal life. My second one, which was born in the summer of 2020, uh, he was born uh, very premature and he spent a lot of time at the hospital. And I think I realized that I wanted to contribute back to science because I saw how science, modern medicine was basically saving that baby. And I just felt an extreme need to contribute back to that. I kept thinking, how can I help? And what I could help with is with my ambition, with my incredible love and passion for science. So I think I finally was honest to myself that 
with all the negativity, all the darkness that science has, it's still what I like to do. So much for the coach, for the toxicity, for a system that asks the researchers to take action to improve their situation. What drove Carla back to science, what motivated her to overcome all the difficulties, was her passion and determination. Thanks to a very supportive person at the university who encouraged her and told her that she had enough material to write her thesis, she accepted to see this through and close this chapter. But this is where she says the second part of her nightmare began. Her supervisor was still there, opposing her graduation. He was telling friends of mine, which were still at the lab, and that then they would tell me, if it's up to me, she will never graduate. Her supervisor was making it difficult for her to complete her PhD. He told her that she could not use some unpublished results in her thesis, that she could not use this or that piece of equipment, that she really needed a first author paper, which she didn't have at that point. He was unavailable or delaying answering her emails. But this did not stop her, and eventually she graduated. I quit in the summer of 2016, and in the autumn of 2019, I finally graduated. So this story has a happy ending. Carla has overcome all the difficulties on her path and has succeeded in obtaining a PhD and in pursuing a career in research, which is what she feels passionate about. She is currently a postdoc and even if what you have heard so far is in the past, she does say that it bears consequences. For one, when she applies for a grant, she fears retaliation from the evaluators because her scientific niche and the community are very small. She says that there is a price for speaking up. But going back, she would take the same decisions all over again. And this is her take-home message. Hopefully, with more awareness of mental health in academia, academia learns to be aware that taking breaks, quitting, changing your path is part of the process and it will only make you stronger. Quitting is not, it's, it, the word is ugly, but the step is beautiful. I don't know how to put it in good words, but quitting is not a weakness. It's a power move. If you choose what you want in that moment with the information you have in that moment, then you are making the right choice. And it comes with consequences, but uh, I'm here to fight them, right? There's a whole world to explore. That's just uh, all that I wanted to say. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more episodes, please check out our website at remo-network.eu. Remo is spelled R-E-M-O-network.eu. This podcast was brought to you by the Researchers' Mental Health Observatory, Cost Action, number 19117. I am Federica Bressan, and I am the host and producer of this podcast. Additional audio editing by Jeff Billens. Thank you to everyone who stepped forward and bravely shared their stories. You are teaching tools for the rest of us. And a final remark. Your well-being matters. This podcast does not provide psychological or psychotherapeutic support. If you are experiencing severe distress, please contact your personal physician, local ambulance, distress helpline or a service for crisis counseling now.